I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 21, 11 through the end of the chapter. And so while you turn there with me, let me pray for the sermon this morning. Oh Lord, we do ask that you would remember us. Remember Grace Covenant Baptist Church when you show favor to your church universal. Help us when you save Grant that we may look upon the prosperity of your people. Grant that we may rejoice in the gladness of your kingdom. Grant that we may glory with your inheritance. So we ask that you would do all this in and through your word this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Have you ever sat up late at night and pondered to yourself, how important is imputation to my faith? You ever ask that question? Maybe you just ask the question now. Or maybe you ask, what is imputation? Asking for the first time now that I've asked it. Or maybe you're just asking the question that my wife sometimes asks, which is, why can't you just talk normal? We have that debate sometimes after Sunday school or a sermon on the drive home. She said, why did you say that that way? And I said, that's how, that's how people talk. And she said, that's not how people talk. And I will inevitably turn to my 14-year-old, our standard of how people talk. And I said, people talk that way, right? And Hadassah shakes her head and goes, no. But if you've spent any time at this church or others like it, you will have probably heard the word imputation before. And you may have spent time wondering whether there is any utility to talking about it, to thinking about it. Do you really need imputation? Now, that question can mean two different things, right? That can mean, do we need the word? Do we need to use that language? Or it can mean, do we need the truths that imputation denotes? And the problem is, we often mix those two. I've, I've heard the debates. I've been part of the discussions here at our, our church, wondering if sometimes our theological language is elitist or exclusionary. Maybe, conceivably, this is your first time ever in a church or in a church that has talked about imputation. Maybe even now you're thinking, what is he even talking about? Bear with us for just a little bit, 40 minutes or so. It is important that we not lose our ability as a church and as Christians to speak with those outside of the church. Christianese theological jargon can become dangerous when it becomes empty slogans without any actual substance that we understand and treasure. Or when that lingo becomes boundary markers that we use to puff ourselves up and shut others out. It does happen. People use big theological words to make themselves feel smart and to make others feel dumb or unspiritual or on the outside of the inner circle of real, serious Christianity. But often, bucking against an elitist use of theological jargon slips into bucking against theology. We can't do away with words because words are vehicles for reality. And sometimes when people are critical of a bad culture of of jargon, they end up being, whether intentionally or not, critical of precious realities. That's a dangerous error, just as dangerous as self-righteous language. And so let's make it clear this morning, the question before us is not an issue of terminology. It's an issue of reality. 
And when it comes to reality, do we need to split hairs about the doctrine of imputation? Right? Can't we just leave Christianity at love God and love your neighbor? The problem is when you divorce a line from the Bible, like love God and love your neighbor, from its biblical context, it often becomes a platitude. And usually platitudes become empty platitudes. And then we end up loving neither God nor our neighbor. The antidote for empty jargon is not less understanding, it's more. It's not a shallower faith, it's a deeper one. And though it is true that in churches sometimes people use jargon as a substitute for understanding, that should never push us away from the old truths, the precious, deep things of God. So this morning, we will see how tightly woven the truth of imputation is to the love of God. Right? If, if you don't know what I mean when I say imputation, hopefully by the end of the message you will. And if you do know what imputation is, hopefully by the end of the message, your understanding and your appreciation for the preciousness of the truths communicated by this simple, if uncommon, word will deepen. My prayer this morning is regardless of what words we may use, that Grace Covenant Baptist Church, especially into 2024, would be a local gathering of God's people that clings tightly to the truth of divine imputation. And so now here, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. I'm going to read the text in its entirety and invite you to keep it open and leave your Bibles open during the entirety of the sermon. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The reason for my opening preamble this morning is because the text we just read has one of the most concise and helpful statements on the doctrine of imputation in the Bible. Verse 21, right at the end of our text. 
But strictly speaking, the main point of the text is not to teach you about imputation. It will do that, but it will also build a whole edifice of Christian life and service on that rock-solid foundation. And just as a reminder, since it's been a while since we've been in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you'll remember, is one of Paul's, if not Paul's, most personal, most raw letter. He writes to a church that even just recently had housed a number of critics who had rejected Paul and his ministry. And a large part of Paul's purpose for writing was to defend and explain the nature of his service to the Corinthians. But 2 Corinthians isn't only or even primarily a letter about Paul's self-defense, right? That's not Paul's main point in writing. It's about the heavenly realities that drove Paul to do what he did. It's about encouraging the Corinthians and us to hold fast to those same heavenly realities, regardless of the opposition we may face from the world or even those who identify as fellow Christians. So listen again to the, the first part, verses 11 through 13. Right? This is coming in the middle of Paul's uh, self-defense of sorts. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Now that might sound like just more self-defense. But that, that isn't Paul's ultimate aim in sharing this. And he's, he's not just seeking exoneration. Like, look, I was you know, above board in my motivations for my actions. Right? Even now, Paul is trying to serve the Corinthians by bolstering their own ministry. Right? Paul's po purpose in these opening verses is not so much to defend himself as it is to act as a model for the Corinthians, to inspire them to persevere in ministry despite detractors, lies, and opposition, even within the church. You are going to need motivation if you're going to follow Christ. And in these verses, there are two parallel motivations that Paul supplies for ministry here. Two parallel motivations that Paul supplies for the Christian life. First one is right there in verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And notice, verse 11, explicitly cut next back to verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. If you remember back to our last message, we saw that what Paul is describing in verse 10 is not salvation according to works, but rather the biblical reality that there is reward or loss of reward according to works in the coming kingdom of God. And it's in light of this that Paul says, verse 11, right? He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. There are eternal rewards at stake. And I'm going to have to face Christ to answer for how I've lived as a Christian. And in light of that, we persuade others. In other words, we, Paul, me, my associates, we engage in gospel ministry because of what is at stake for us. And what is at stake isn't gain or loss of reputation before you or the watching world. We understand that we will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ 
Paul's ministry was done in light of Christ's concerns, to please Jesus, not to please Paul's critics. And however you take the specifics of the following verses, we can understand the rest of verses 11 through 13 is elaborating on the character of Paul's ministry and how it is meant to persuade others. Paul's doing evangelism. He's doing church planning. He's doing local church ministry with an eye towards persuasion, conversion, to see people saved. Many people puzzle over verse 13. I puzzled over verse 13. A great deal. I spent a great deal of time mulling over it, and I'm still not exactly sure what he means. Right? I don't know what he means when he says by being beside ourselves or being in our right mind. He says, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. I'm not sure what he means. There are a couple main options that most readers suggest, and both are very compelling to me. But we don't actually need to decide because we can still understand the main thrust of what he's saying in context. Paul's point is everything that we do is for your ultimate good, Corinthians, regardless of whatever criticisms we may be receiving. You want us to be serving Christ and not our critics. You should want us to be serving Christ and not the critics. That is to your eternal benefit, and we are faithful in that. He says, what we are is known to God. God knows our heart. Our consciences are clear. I want you to understand us rightly. He says, I, Paul the Apostle, am motivated by the reality that I will have to stand before Jesus Christ, and this is a good thing for you. And related to, but distinct from this first motivation, is a second motivation that appears there in verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. And Paul defines this love of Christ in the rest of verse 14 and on through 15. He says, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Because we know and understand this. This is what I'm talking about when I say the love of Christ controls us. We know that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ's love for his people was demonstrated in his death. And here, Paul focuses on a result, a particular result of that death. Now, he doesn't quite go into the, the theological mechanics of Christ's death. He does that in a few verses. But for now, he focuses on one of the results of Christ's death. And you'll notice two things there in verses 14 through 15. You, you, you see the, there's repetition and there's a shift. Paul repeats the fact that Christ died for all, and he pairs it, each time he pairs it first with a result and then with a purpose. But you notice there's a shift between the two. Right? In the result, in verse 14, Christ died for all, therefore all died. Right? So, so as a result of Christ's death, there is, there is a kind of death. But then in verse 15, he says Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him. Right? So the purpose of Christ's death was a kind of life. There is both death and life that results from Christ's death. And this, firstly, it helps us understand who, who Paul's referring to, right? It, it's the same group throughout. The all that Christ dies for, in this case, is his people. His people are the ones who die with him and who live for him. That's not everybody. That's his people. Paul's talking about what Jesus has done for Christians. So a Christian is someone who, because of Christ's death, has died. 
but died how? There are at least two ways that Christ's death results in the death of believers, and we know this because Paul uses this language about the duality of both life and death in Christ quite a bit throughout his letters. In Galatians, he says, Through the law, I died to the law, that I might live to God. In Colossians, he says, You have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. In Timothy, he says, If we have died with him, we also will live with him. And particularly in Romans 6, he elaborates on this idea quite a bit. We find in Romans 6, where Paul is uh, asking the rhetorical question, you know, should we continue in sin because of what Christ has done? And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, we can't turn this into a whole exposition of Romans 6, but we see in that elaboration at least two ways that Christians are said to die in Christ. At least two ways that Christ's death results in a death for believers. And the first is the truth that by Jesus' death, we are considered to have suffered the penalty of death ourselves. But we're going to come back to that in the back half of the sermon. Right? I'm, we're not skipping that. that. That's huge. We're putting a big red flashing pin on that, and we are coming back to it. But what's in the foreground of verses 14 through 15 of our passage is the second way. In verse 15, our passage makes clear that the death that Christians die in verse 14 is one that results in them living not for themselves, but for Christ. Right? The second way that Christians die in Christ is that they die to their old life that they had before Jesus. In and through Jesus, they die to their old life. They die to sin, and then they live to God. They live for God. Right? This is crucial. To be a Christian is not just to have a ticket to heaven that you keep in your back pocket and you save for the day you die, to be redeemed at the gates of New Jerusalem for one entry into paradise. No, to be a Christian now, today, in the present, is to radically break from everything that came before Christ. You are dead to your old life. If you are in Christ, as he says in verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And the new that has come is a life oriented around Jesus. Right? That, that's what 
this is all for, right? This isn't just a weekly pickup. There's some spirituality to sprinkle into an already full life, right? Church isn't a Christian-flavored additive that we put to the, in our cocktail of life, right? Everything that we do as we gather together as a people is about helping each other totally reorient our entire lives to revolve around Jesus. He died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Paul's point is that he is existentially, he's morally, he is cosmically obligated to live for Jesus. And if you are in Christ, so are you. Verses 14 through 15 are about Paul recognizing the consuming nature of seeing the love of Christ, and this is presented as the grounds for Paul's entire Christian life. Right? That's why verse 14 starts with 4, connects it back to verse 13, where Paul said, everything we do is for you, Corinthians. Everything we do is for you because the love of Christ controls us. Right? Verse 14 grounds Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. Verse 11 grounds Paul's ministry to the Corinthians. That means they're a pair, right? The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ compel Paul. The reality that there are eternal stakes to Paul's service and that Paul has experienced a totally life-reorienting display of God's love are the twin motivations that characterize all of his life. And Paul wants the Corinthians to think in those terms, right? That, that's why he's saying this. Not just to vindicate himself, but so that they would think this way too. So that the Corinthians would be prepared to face the world. That's the point of verse 12. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Right? We want you to understand what is driving our ministry. Not so that you will think well of us, that's not what Paul means when he says by boast, so that you'll be able to boast about us, right? Because he says we're not commending ourselves. So when he says boast, you, I want you to be able to boast about us, he means I want you to be able to be confident in the nature of our ministry and by extension yours so that when people attack it or ministry like it, like your ministry, which will inevitably be produced when you're faithful to Jesus, you will be able to stand firm. You will be able to focus on and value these particular heart motivations. Right, that's what Paul's getting at with the according to the flesh language in verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Right? What Paul means by that is, what he means by according to the flesh is according to earthly appearances that do not take into account heavenly, spiritual, eternal realities that are always at play, right? We regard no one according to the flesh. We do not think of, about any of our relationships with our acquaintances and our neighbors or our business associates or our classmates or our coaches or our teachers, our friends, our relatives. We do not think about any of these people in our lives without the corrective lens of God Jesus, the gospel, the eternal destiny of all mankind and creation, coloring our vision. Paul once thought of Jesus only in earthly terms, right? Paul thought of him as a failed teacher executed by the Romans and even a threat to his career and his culture. 
But now Paul recognizes the truth, and that truth has forced him to literally reevaluate everything else he thinks about everything else. From an earthly perspective, Jesus may indeed be a threat to your career. He may be a threat to your culture. But no longer can you do anything from an earthly perspective. There is no sphere of your life that the truth of the gospel should not utterly dominate. No relationship, no partnership, no activity. You should regard no one according to the flesh. View no one from just an earthly perspective. All are eternal souls and all live in a world designed to be the theater of the glory of Jesus Christ. And all will reckon with his lordship one way or another, one day or another. So relate to people like that's true. Paul is a new creation since recognizing the divine lordship of Jesus Christ, and he cannot go on living like the world is what he thought it was before Jesus. And that means, as we've seen in our trek through 2 Corinthians, that he was and will continue to be often misinterpreted, rejected, and maligned by people who do view the world only according to the flesh. And so Paul's rhetorical point for the Corinthians becomes, you are a new creation. If you have recognized the divine lordship of Jesus Christ, you're in the same boat. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation, and you cannot regard anyone according to the flesh anymore. The gospel of Jesus Christ needs to saturate every thought and action you take, even though this means that the rest of the world will often misinterpret you, reject you, malign you. Even sometimes people who identify in the church. Paul is saying that if you embrace the fear of Jesus and the love of God, you too will experience much of the problems that I, Paul, have faced from some of you. But you are a new creation in Christ. You don't have any option of turning back. Now, so far, Paul has put ministry in terms of motivation. He, he's, he supplied his own motivations, and in doing so, hoping to supply motivations to the Corinthians. That's, this is what drives me. This is what sh should drive you. But in the last few verses, he kind of comes at it from a new angle, another angle. In, in verses 11, or 18 through 21, he starts to speak, not in terms of motivation, but in terms of obligation. Right? Paul doesn't just have subjective motivations to serve Christ. He does. But he also has a divine mandate. Right? Look at verses 18 through 20. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has given Paul and the apostles, their associates, and ultimately every member of his church, and therefore every member of Grace Covenant, the ministry of reconciliation, the service of reconciliation, the job of administering reconciliation. 
Right? There is literally a divine mandate that hovered over all of Paul's life and that if you are in Christ, hovers over all of your life. You have been handed, you have been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation. Now to understand everything that's going on in these last four verses, we're going to break down Paul's logic here into five observations. Five observations from 18 through 21. Observation one. Reconciliation to God means having your sins forgiven. If we're going to talk about reconciliation, we need to know what reconciliation is. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? What does it mean to have your relationship with God restored, fixed, reestablished? Well, first, it assumes that something is broken between you and God. Sin has broken something between you and God. However minor or minuscule you understand your sin to be, however small it might be in your own eyes, you have to understand it breaks your fellowship with God. You and me, we're not good. Your sin is a problem. Things aren't okay. Man is estranged from God because of sin. It's not small. We're kicked out of the house. We're spiritual street urchins. We have run away. And we know that sin is the issue because Paul defines reconciliation in terms of sins being forgiven. In verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not having their trespasses, the things they've done wrong, all their evil, all their rejection, not having those things counted against them, forgiving those things. To be reconciled is to be welcomed home and have all the evil that we did in the process of running away removed from our divine heavenly ledger. To be reconciled to God is to be spiritually welcomed home, not having our trespasses counted against us. To be reconciled means that sinners are forgiven for everything they did while they were rebelling against God. Right? That's at the heart of the gospel. Forgiveness for sins. God is actively reconciling the world to himself, which means he is actively in the business of forgiving people of their sins, not holding their crimes against them. Now, observation two, our receiving the ministry of reconciliation is based on our experiencing reconciliation ourselves. In verse 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We're reconciled to God and then receive the ministry of reconciliation. So what comes first and foundationally to being ministers of reconciliation is to be yourself reconciled to God. Right? It may seem obvious, but you cannot be a servant of God's ministry to the world unless you yourself are first reconciled to God, unless your sins are forgiven. Option three, observation three, God is the one who does the reconciling, right? Who's the reconciler? In verses 18 and 19, twice, God is explicitly the subject. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God is the one who does the work of reconciliation, the metaphor that Paul uses for us is, and our ministry is ambassadors, speaking on behalf of God. But even then, the ultimate speaker is considered to be God himself, as verse 20 again makes God the clear subject. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal 
through us. God's the one who is making the appeal. God's the one who's doing the reconciliation. That we are entrusted with this ministry does not mean that we are the reconcilers. Right? In order to properly understand our ministry or our place in God's economy, we have to recognize that God is the one who does the reconciling. God is the one who does the forgiving, which leads to observation four. To have the ministry of reconciliation means to be a herald, an announcer, a proclaimer of reconciliation. Right? Notice how Paul parallels the ministry of reconciliation with the message of reconciliation. Again, in verses 18 through 19. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then in verse 19, he was reconciling the world to himself and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Right? The parallels make it clear. The ministry of reconciliation is the work of delivering the message. Right? That's, that's why we get the conclusion in verse 20. We're ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. And then, actually, Paul chooses to act the part. Right? That's the exhortation at the end of verse 20. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That right there is Paul modeling what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. It means imploring people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, right? And this is the context. This is the context that we find Paul's explanation of imputation. We're, we're back. We didn't leave that. This is the context we find Paul's explanation of imputation in verse 21. The exhortation to be reconciled is why Paul adds this incredibly succinct and clear statement of this important foundational theological truth Right? which means to be reconciled to God, to act on Paul's exhortation requires verse 21. Paul believes this is important. That's why he says it. Be reconciled. That means you've got to get this. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which leads to our fifth observation. Reconciliation happens in and through Jesus Christ. Right, you notice how each time Paul mentions God's act of re reconciliation, he specifies it is through Christ, it is in Christ. And as we've already talked about in 2 Corinthians, that's Pauline shorthand. That means it's accomplished by the means of Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. And in fact, Paul unpacks that for us here. Right? It's succinct, but it's as clear as you get anywhere in the New Testament. Verse 21 is one of the clearest statements about God's mechanism for how he reconciles the world to himself. That mechanism, that means, is what we call imputation. Actually, it's, it's a double imputation, as it turns out, right? How does God reconcile the world to himself through Christ? Well, first is the first sense of how in Christ Christians die. Right? We're back to that as well. Christians get to identify with Jesus in his death. So that the death he died counts as you having died it, right? God chooses to associate you with the death of Christ. Jesus' death counts for you in the sense is it counts as you having died. You having experienced the punishment for sins that you deserve, right? The reason that God doesn't count trespasses against his people is not because he chooses to ignore the sins in a cosmic act of injustice, 
But it's because Jesus, in his capacity as the infinite God-man, died and experienced an infinite punishment, thereby paying for his people, so that their sins are not counted against them, because they were instead counted against Jesus. Right? That's the first half of verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus knew no sin, and God made him to be sin. Now that doesn't mean Jesus started sinning. It means he was made to carry upon himself the guilt and punishment for sin as if he were the sinner who deserved it. With, with regard to eternal heavenly justice, no ordinary man can do that for even one other person. Right? Because every person is guilty of their own sins. And they've all been sentenced to death on their own account. So they can't take the penalty for someone else. They don't have a life available to do that. They have to pay for their own crimes. And if you and your neighbor each have $100 in your pocket and you've both been fined $100, neither of you can pay for the other because you don't have $100 to spend. You owe it. You have to pay for yourself. But Jesus never lied. And he never stole and he never lusted, and he never murdered, and he never hated his brother, he never lost control of his tongue, he never misspoke, he was never cruel, he was never unrighteously angry, he was never lazy, he was never faithless. He had no debt himself, and so was innocent, and so able to step in and take the punishment on behalf of another, because he had incurred no punishment himself. But what's more, Jesus is actually able to do that for every single one of his people because he was more than a man. He was God incarnate, capable of paying for an infinite debt because he in his person is infinite. I didn't initially plan to include this observation, but just consider the elevated way that Paul talks about Jesus in these verses. He opens by talking about the fear of the Lord which again, in context, is fear of Christ. Because remember, verse 10 immediately before is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. I have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and therefore, fear of the Lord, fear of Christ. I mean, think about that. To talk about Christ as judge, whom you have to appear before at the end of time, to use the phrase, the fear of the Lord, with reference to Jesus. I mean, given how pregnant those things are with meaning and significance in the Old Testament, that would be grossly sloppy and dangerous if Jesus was not, in fact, the Lord of the Old Testament, Yahweh himself. Right? Paul says our calling is to live for Christ. Right? He, he urges us all to live for Christ, and he doesn't fear being labeled an idolater for saying that. He can only talk in such an exalted way because Paul knows that Jesus is Yahweh, the Lord himself. And that means, among other things, that all the praises, all the statements about God's infinite glory, nature, power, and person in the Psalms, for example, like, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Yahweh sits enthroned forever. Yahweh will reign forever. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Yahweh is on high forever. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart last to all generations. We rejoice in Yahweh who rules by his might forever. 
Yahweh covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Right? All that talk about God, that's Jesus. That's all Jesus. That eternally reigning, infinitely majestic, unendingly powerful, unsearchably wise and knowing one is Jesus Christ. And so, he was able to pay for an infinite debt for his people. Right? He doesn't erase and ignore the debt in the sense of, I'm just going to pretend it never existed. He actually pays for it. Right? It's not make-believe on God's part. He's not pretending that there was no sin. Jesus paid the infinite debt that sin incurred. He bore the infinite wrath of the Father that all sin deserves so that our debts are cleared. Right? Jesus, as a man, was a legitimate representative for his people, and as God, he is a fully capable representative for his people. He did it. He paid for his people. You know, there's a there's a, a, a movie trope. I don't know if uh, Spartacus was the first movie that featured it, but it did make it famous. It's repeated in a lot of other movies. Mask of Zorro, even the, the Luther movie from the early 2000s, right? The, scene I'm ref the scenes I'm referring to are all some variation of the authorities are looking for someone, right? They're looking for someone to put him to death. He's committed some sort of crime. And then in order to protect that person, an innocent in the crowd stands up and he claims to be the person in question so that they can take the penalty instead. And the reason those scenes are so powerful is because they are a faint reflection of the gospel. That's what Jesus does in the cosmic heavenly courtroom with regard to the case against Jeremiah Zuo for his crimes of covetousness, dishonesty, theft, lust, hatred, rebellion, irreverence, and idolatry, we find the defendant guilty and sentence him to eternal death. And Jesus steps forward and says, that's me. Jesus willingly moved towards the cross his whole life culminating in trembling and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat blood thinking about the cup of God's wrath and the gargantuan case against each and every one of us in the heavenly ledgers. The infinite Son listened as our list of crimes was read out for all the universe to see and agree with God's just judgment. And then he prayed, not my will, yours be done, and he went to the cross. That was God the Father saying to that was God the Son saying to God the Father, yeah, I'm Jeremiah, I'm Josh, I'm Jose, I'm Julian, I'm Rebecca, I'm Liz, I'm Esther, I'm Samuel, I'm Sarah, I'm Carrie, I'm Haley, I'm Mary, I'm Jake, I'm Kimberly, I'm Greg, I'm Jim. God announced each and every one of our names in heaven, and Jesus said, Yes, that's me. I accept the punishment. And then he went to the cross and he did. Right? That's Imputation, that's the first part of imputation. Our sins imputed, counted to the innocent one, satisfying justice and laying the groundwork for us to be truly and definitively forgiven. But there's a second part to this exchange, a second part to imputation. So our sins are imputed to Christ. He's treated as if he sinned our sins. And then we are treated as if we live the righteous life that Jesus lived. 
Our sins are imputed to Christ, and his righteousness is imputed to us. That's the back half of verse 21. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. That doesn't mean that through Christ, we become more morally righteous over time. That does happen through the giving of the Spirit, the work of sanctification. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. You notice the parallel. Jesus becoming sin does not mean he gradually became sinful. It means he was treated exactly as if he was sinful us because he swapped places with us. And in the same way, the point communicated by in him we might become the righteousness of God is that we are treated as if we have the totally complete righteous character of God because we are treated as if we were Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, do you understand what Paul's saying? God treats you as if you were as righteous as he himself, as righteous as the Son of God, as righteous as the man who never lied, never stole, never lusted, never murdered, never hated, never lost control of his tongue, never misspoke, never was cruel, never angry, lazy, never faithless. When God looks at you, he sees all of his own righteousness reflected in the face of his Son, whom he loves and has always delighted in. And again, this this isn't make-believe on God's part. There is real righteousness that is the basis of your acceptance by God, the basis for the restoration of your relationship with him. There's a real righteousness that holds up our salvation. It just isn't ours. The son of the president gets to attend the White House Christmas party. And when he brings a guest, they're welcome too. Not because of who they are, but because who they are with. We are guests of the Son. At the gates of the eternal kingdom of God, at the borders of the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will stand next to you and say, He's with me. She's with me. Mike's with me. Debbie's with me. Alicia's with me. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to us means all that he is is counted for us. We are accepted and welcomed because of who he is in his person and his accomplishments shared with us, as if they were our person, our accomplishments. Right? Another way we talk about imputation, another way the Bible talks about imputation is, is representation, vicarious representation. You know, when, uh, this is a while back now, when the, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series, I could hear my neighbor across the courtyard from inside his house, and I was inside. I wasn't outside. I could hear my neighbor shout, we did it. We did it. We won. We won. Same thing. I had a friend in seminary, a huge Golden State fan, and when they won their first modern championship, he posted a video on Facebook of them seeing the moment that that happens, and he and all his friends jumping up and down, hugging each other, screaming, we did it. We did it. We won. My first thought was, well, what did you do? Because I'm pretty sure you were watching TV. (laughs) But no, their joy was getting at something real, shared victory and glory through representation. These teams won, and their win is representative for us, for them, who they represented. I remember when LeBron James went back to Cleveland. He said it was important for him to win a championship for Cleveland, right? That's how he talked. We understand this. We understand that when athletes go and represent America in the Olympics, every individual American can say honestly at the end of the day, we won 18 gold medals this year in swimming. But they can only say that in the sense of, 
Michael Phelps won 18 gold medals this year, and because he won 18 gold medals, we did because he represents us. Right? Jesus won the singular battle that defines all of mankind. He completed the only goal that we all have in common. He lived a righteous life. He was a righteous person. He lived a righteous life. He was a righteous man. And he did this as a representative for all who believe in him so that all his people can truly and honestly say, we are righteous. But they can only say that in the sense of in and through Christ we are righteous because he is righteous and he represents us. And what a solid foundation this is for our salvation. Our position with God is secure because it isn't based on our merit. Our sins cannot detract from it because they've been fully paid for. And we need not fear any welcoming in heaven because we are welcomed as if we are Jesus Christ himself. Our salvation is totally rock solid on Christ. That doesn't mean that we take it for granted or that we intentionally rack up more sins. How did Paul respond to God's forgiveness of him in Christ? Paul responds by living for him who died for us and was raised. That's what we are called to do now. If we enjoy the imputation of our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us, we are called to live for him, to die to our old lives and to live totally for him. Because of imputation, our sins to Christ, his righteousness to us, we are compelled to reorient our entire lives around Jesus. It's not just for Sundays. This is not just for the box we check what religion you are. This is everything. And what's more, we have been entrusted with this message. We are called to live the back end of verse 20, right? Remember, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're called to live that. And the way we live that is, firstly, if you're not reconciled to God, the way you live that is, be reconciled to God. Accept Jesus' representation of you. Turn to him in faith. Identify with him. Allow him to have your sins counted against him and accept his righteousness counted for you. Be reconciled to God. The second way you live that exhortation, if you are reconciled to God, if you are trusting in Christ, is you then go and you make that same exhortation. Right? You regard no one from an earthly perspective. Exhort your neighbors, exhort your co-workers, your friends, and your family. Be reconciled to God. And at the heart of that exhortation, at the heart of that reconciliation, is the imputation of our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us. Right? So the question is, do you understand? Do you understand the mechanisms of Christ's death? And is it a treasure to you such that you are confident and excited to invite others to share in it? And if you're not there, then get there. Understand it, mull on it, digest it, savor it treasure it, and so be able to share it. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for what you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your reconciling work, for your restoring the broken relationship, for you inviting us all home. We thank you that you have 
paid for our sins, that your son Jesus, in his capacity as a man and as infinite God, was willing to pay for our sins. And we thank you that he was kind enough to share his righteousness, that it might be counted for us. And so we ask you right now that if there are those who do not trust in Christ, who have not yet known this imputation, this experience of this reconciliation, that you would soften their hearts even now to confess their need of you, to turn away from relying on themselves, to throw themselves on the mercy of Christ, find him all sufficient to save. And we ask for those of us who do believe that you would bolster our ability and our desire to exhort others to be reconciled to you. Grant us all the understanding and all the affection necessary to do these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.